Jesus called his followers to be like him. They, they knew that they were being trained to be like Jesus, and wouldn't that have been exciting? To hear Jesus preach, to see him teach, to watch him heal people. This was a guy who you were apprenticed to as a disciple that knew how to turn water into wine. He didn't just turn it into wine. He, he walked on water. <laughs> he, he fed thousands from a kid's lunch. What an amazing thing it would have been to have been there and to observe all that Jesus did and how he did it. And yet, having been there, there's only one thing that we know about in all of Scripture for which the disciples actually asked Jesus to teach them. Are you aware of what it is? It's here in Luke chapter 11. Listen, it says, And it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, and this is in Luke chapter 11, this is Luke's version, Father, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He lives, leaves out, uh, thy, thy, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But really, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is just a way to rephrase that phrase, thy kingdom come. Right? Thy kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves... Also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into, lead us not into temptation. So Jesus gives them a, a model for this prayer. But, but he's not just teaching. Uh, if he was teaching technique, I think there would have been much more involved there. That doesn't seem to be Jesus' concern. Nor do I think it was the concern when the disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. It might have been the power that they saw in his life as he went away to pray with his father and then returned with with fresh vision and fresh direction and a new sense of determination and a new sense of empowering. Jesus would come back from times of prayer and just pour himself out in miraculous and astounding ways. Maybe they realized that often those moments that everyone saw were almost always set up by moments that no one saw except Jesus and his Father. When Jesus would go away to a quiet place or a mountain and there to spend the night in prayer with his Lord. Maybe it was the power. Maybe maybe it was just the way Jesus prayed with this familiarity, not as if he was talking to some distant deity, but, but he would address God as Daddy. It was familiar, it was intimate. I, I don't think you could make a case really that these guys that Jesus was teaching how to pray were somehow monks by nature, you know, the kind of people that are contemplatives and, and tend to be, have personalities that drift towards prayer. They were fish, fishermen and tax collectors and basically a mess. You, you remember all those 12, don't you? We, we've talked about them personality by personality before, and holy men are not to be found uh, amongst them. But they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them a simple model more than a technique. He, 
He then lifts up, rather than praying with some kind of perfection that turns the, 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 the cogs of heaven by the perfection or the, the right words or the, all, all that. Jesus then lifts up this principle more than any other that he taught the disciples in praying. He gives them a model, and then he says, persist in it. Persist in it. Don't give up. All this persistence is based on the very nature of God, the one to whom we pray. Uh, But that we commonly, I think, misinterpret by so many presumptions. We often think that the, the, the quantity of our prayer is necessary because it's required to turn the hand of a reluctant God. Or it's required to get the attention of a God that's not really attentive to our prayers. Uh, that, that would, I think, be the common presumptions. But Jesus shows us these parables by vast contrast to that. He starts with those kind of presuppositions in the way he lays them out. But, but I want you to hear some parables teach powerfully because they lay something along some spiritual truth. And, and the reality of the spiritual truth is, is communicated because these things are similar. This is common to us, you know, planting a seed, uh, sowing seed. What, you know, what, what, those, those, the, he used this in, in his parables almost all kind of common to life experiences. And he says, as this you understand, so is this in the kingdom of heaven. And he describes spiritual things in terms, and we can see the truth of it because it's similar. But, but I want to warn you, in this particular parable, he does put spiritual things parallel to common things that we understand. But this one is not based on similarity. It's based on contrast. It's, it turns on us recognizing that this God that we misinterpret, it is not who we think He is. And because of that, our persistence in prayer is not less necessary. It even makes more sense. All right? So that's where these parables are going. And here's the first one He told. Immediately after teaching them this model prayer, Jesus says this, And He said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight. And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. Now this is not a weird friend. Okay, in in, in Palestine at the time, this was kind of a common thing. Because people usually traveled not in the heat of the day, but in the cool of the afternoon. And so if you were traveling and you didn't have buses and cars, you just had carts and donkeys to get you there quite often the distance would carry you deep into the night before you reached your destination in order to avoid the heat of the day where it would be toughest on you, your family, and your beasts of burden. So they would start as the sun started going down, and often it would be late at night before they would arrive at the place that they were going. And it was also common that if you were a person who received someone in from the road, it was common courtesy for you not to just lay out a little snack before they went to bed. It was common courtesy for you to put before them an abundance. But it was also a common occurrence that if you came at the end of the day after the bread had been eaten and the food had been put away, if you came at the end of the day to a, to a, to a commoner's home, which is usually one room that didn't have a separation of the rooms, but just an elevation. You know, it was, it was like a two-level. Some of our homes are that way, you know. I, Heard of someone who tripped this week, not remembering that the, they had to step up somewhere. And, you know, 
two levels. And, and, and in those two levels, there was usually an upper level where the family and everyone else would gather around the stove to stay warm at night. And they would even bring in their animals, their chickens, their goats, and all those kind of things. Get them settled down in the lower level. I don't know if that was for washing out the next day or what was the purpose. There were probably many practical, but there was an elevated place and a lower place. So see this family gathered around the stove. Everyone's tucked in. Everyone's asleep. The animals are finally quiet. And also in Palestine, if you, if you came to during the day, they would open their doors. That, that's why you hear so much about open doors in the Scripture. That was common. During the day, you opened the doors. People came and went. It was fair. But, but at night, it was like putting out a do not disturb sign when the door shut. You know? We're, 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 you know, we're going to bed in here. We're trying to get everything settled. Shut the door, right? And, and so it was, almost, it was almost rude to come in the middle of the night with all that that could be stirred on the inside and boom, 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 boom. Oh, please, let him go away. You can imagine. We're sleeping. Hey, Joe, I, I, I need some bread. I, my, my cousin Abraham came in and we, we weren't expecting him and we, we'd already put out all the bread for the day. You know, I get stale if you try to keep it more than one day. Do you have anything left over? I, I, I don't have an abundance to put before him. Please, please, can you help me? I don't even remember what I called his name. Joe, we're asleep. For God's sakes, you're going to wake the goats. You know how long it takes to get the goats down. Go away. But you're my friend. Am I? Am I really? You know, it, it, it was one of those kind of situations that, that, that this friend would be walking into. But he approaches, apparently in the confidence of knowing that this isn't just a neighbor this is a friend. Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children, my children, and I are asleep. I'm trying to find my best Jewish voice here. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, boom, 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 boom. Well, all right, all right, quit knocking. But because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Yeah, go, go away. And I say to you, Ask, and it shall be given to you. And that's not even the best translation of the word ask. The real word is um, be asking. Keep asking. And I say to you, keep asking, and it shall be given to you. Keep seeking, and you shall find. Keep knocking, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be open. And remember, he told them in the prayer, address God as Father. Father, hallowed be thy name. So then this follows on the heels of that. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? 
Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, here, contrast, how much more shall your heavenly Father, is your heavenly Father evil? No, this is, this is contrast. How much more then shall your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? That's what I would have expected. But as Jesus always does, just when you think you know the punchline, look out. He doesn't say, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? That's what they were... If you can give good gifts to your kids, He changes it. He says, uh, your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who to those who ask him the lesson here is to keep praying to keep asking to keep knocking it's a lesson in in persistence Uh, even with a reluctant friend even with a, a person who was bothered by their being awakened from their sleep even one who is preoccupied with his with his own stuff and cares little or nothing about yours. Nevertheless, that friend, because of persistence, will will get up and and respond to his need. Now, now let me ask you this. In contrast, is is your God one who is a reluctant answerer of prayer? Absolutely not. Luke, uh, uh, is it in this very passage? Um, This just came to me. Jesus says, for your heavenly Father loves to give you the kingdom. Where is that? He loves it. He he delights in it. He's not reluctant. Uh, A a person who is bothered by a lack of sleep. Your God never sleeps nor slumbers. It's never an imposition. He's opened by the Holy Spirit a communication portal between you and Him that's open always, even when you do not know how to pray. For the Spirit prays when we do not know how to pray for us. It says in Romans 8, one so preoccupied with his own stuff. I love that little scene in, in uh, uh, that little scene in, um, what was the movie that recently came out? We said, uh, the Shack, where uh, he, he comes back and, and Papa, the God figure, is seat, seated on the porch. And uh, she's got some shades on, some iced tea, and she's just, you know, kind of drinking it in. And, and he says, uh, oh, sorry, didn't, didn't realize you had nothing to do. And do you remember what her response was? Honey, you have no idea how much I'm doing right now. See? And, and, and most of us laughed at that because that's the way we think about God all the time. Well, you, God's got so much going on, you, I, have, I have no idea. So why... Why should I interrupt? Is this really that important? Does he really care about this job interview that I've got? Does he really care about how my kids responded to me this morning and how I'm trying to work out their cantankerous spirit? Does he really care about all these things that are my kinds of concerns has God hung out a do not disturb sign and I'm afraid to knock at the door? 
Can I presume God to be my friend? Jesus puts it in far different language. Not just your friend, your daddy. Your father. I, I don't know about you, but every parent comes to that, that, uh, that age when their kids are, are stepping out and listening more to their peers, perhaps, than they are listening to you at home. You know? Now, have you ever been tempted, though I, I don't think it would be a very profitable conversation, do, have you ever been tempted, parents, in those moments to try to explain to your child that that friend has very little investment in them. Whereas you have been pouring your life into them for the last, oh, 12, 14, 16, 36 years. <laughs> and, and, and they can probably trust your love and wisdom a little bit more than whoever's out there in the El Dorado. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, Jesus doesn't say even that God is our friend. He goes way beyond that. And he says, he's your Abba. He, he, he's your father. And I guarantee you, with what God did on the cross, he's got far more invested in you than anyone else you might ever consult. <laughs> Not just because he's your friend, because he is your father. You can trust this. If you ask your father for a fish, if you have a good-willed father, even though he's an imperfect father, will he give you a snake instead? Can you trust your heavenly father to love you at least as much as that kind of father? Or ask for an egg and he would give you a scorpion. No, 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 no. This is the, this is the God uh, that authored compassion because it flows from him because that is who and what he is. Not because he loves, but because he is love. Does he love? If, if you then can give good gifts to your kids when they respond, it may not be always the gift that they ask for. You know, They may ask for a fish, and you know it's spoiled, and so you give them something else. But can you trust that heart of the one who would be the giver like you could trust a faithful father? How much more, the Scripture says, would God not give good gifts no, not good gifts. The giver of good gifts. I think it's an important little unanticipated switch out there at the end of that parable. Not just give good gifts, you see. Jesus is not painting a picture that our prayer life is something that gives us access to a vending machine in heaven. See, it's not just about the answer to the prayer. It's just not about the gift that's given far more important and far more precious than any realization of a prayer or an ask or a knock or a seeking. Uh, far more important than any of that is that we have been given that companion which is the answerer of everything we could ever ask. That, that, that He is the one who, who walks with us. And, and far from being a, a neighbor that's asleep and unattentive, this Holy Spirit is always with us. Jesus guaranteed it. And, and the helper that I will send with you to send to you will be with you always, he says in John 16. Always listening. We pray. And God hears.
So if we could become convinced of that, would we pray more persistently or less? Jesus' point here is pray persistently, not because you have a reluctant God to overcome, but because you have a God that is ever-present with you, ever-willing to respond in love and wisdom and grace. In another parable, he, he picks up this same theme. It's again in Luke, Luke 18, 2-8. He says it a little bit differently here. You're probably familiar with this story too. Now he was telling them, this is verse 1 of chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that. Okay, here it is. This is the point. Luke tells us the point, and then he tells us the parable, and then he tells us the point again. Pretty good Methodist preacher, if you ask me. To show that at all times they ought to pray, at all times, and not to lose heart. Saying there was a certain, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect men. Okay, now, another parable of contrast. This judge is not at all like God. He neither fears not God nor respects man. He's the antithesis of what Moses was told in Exodus 18 to look for in a judge. First of all, Moses was told to look for someone who fears God. Why is that? Because he always cares about what's right, no matter whose interests are involved. Right? A man who, first of all, fears God, but also a man who would respect people. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. The verb's in the same tense there as the asking and the keeping and asking and the knocking and the seeking of the previous parable. It's, it's in, it's in that, that sense that says, do this and keep on doing it. Do this as a continuing act. Therefore, continually coming, she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, is our God an unrighteous judge? Not at all. Very much in contrast to that. But hear what even an unrighteous judge comes to by the persistence of the one who keeps asking. And the Lord said, hear what this unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God come about, uh, bring about justice for his elect, his chosen ones? Do you hear Shall not God bring about justice for those for whom he died? Who cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? This is Jesus' words. I tell you, the living Son of God says, "Put put my signature under this statement. I tell you that He will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? There He goes again. Same kind of parable. Everything's fallen into place. You expect a period, and then, and will the Son of Man find faith when He comes upon the earth? Wow. I I, I was was weighing all this in terms of 
whether or not I can count on God. And Jesus absolutely assures me of that and then turns the tables on me and says, but can God count on you? If we serve a God so faithful, can we serve a God that faithful and, and that God not, not require of us, not want of us, not want to see in us that same kind of faithfulness to Him? If He is to be counted upon, and He is, we just sang about His faithfulness this morning. Can He count on us to be faithful? Another surprise ending. A, a, a judge that has no respect for God and men. Not a righteous judge. Nevertheless, gives justice because of the persistence of this widow who kept coming and asking. She receives an answer because she res- persists. She receives an answer And we shall receive an answer because God is different than this kind of God. Jesus' words are, hear what the unrighteous judge said, shall not God, a righteous God, for His elect, not respond speedily? I tell you, the living Word of God guarantees it. Pray always. Persist. And I love the phrase by which this whole parable is introduced, and not to lose heart. But that's so human. We can bring concerns to God, and we can bring them to God again and again, and at first we don't see the answers that we were looking for. If they're not as immediate as we would like, if they're not the answers that we were really hoping for, then it's often easy just to lose heart, to give up. I love the story of uh, Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson. Do you remember that story? Jackie Robinson had crossed the color line into professional baseball and not too many people then were happy about it. There were those who always considered him a hero. There were those on both sides uh, in terms of race that, that saw the greatness in this man and yet our, our country was so divided along racial lines that it was a courageous and difficult thing for Jackie Robinson to take that step. There's been a movie recently, I think it was called 42, that retells that story. And even in that movie, they they share uh, a little bit of Pee Wee Reese and and, uh, uh, Jackie's special kind of relationship. Jackie was the second baseman. No, he was a shortstop. And and, uh, uh, Jackie Robinson, as I understood, either played first base or sometimes sometimes second base. You baseball guys can probably correct me on some of that. But, But... is that not you shaking your head? Not not first base, second base. Okay, good. Second base, second base. I understand in this story he was on first base though, so I, I don't know what happened or why that was the case. But he they had gone into uh, uh, a baseball field in the south. I'll just tell you where it was. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, at Ponce de Leon Field, and and Jackie had gotten several death threats. In fact, 
Pee Wee Reese had even gotten a death threat. And he had gone to the manager at the time saying, I'm not sure we want to do this. I've, I just got a letter saying that I might be killed if I, I get out on the field with, with Jackie Robinson. And the, 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 the manager pulled open a drawer and pulled out a collection of letters and dumped them on the top of the desk and said, oh, really, you've gotten one letter? These are the letters that Jackie has gotten. And Pee Wee Reese went onto the field with a, with a different attitude that day. They were, they were warming up before the game, you know. And Pee Wee, in his, he, he, he could always relate to Jackie in such a way that he understood the seriousness of the situation, and yet he could always get Jackie to laugh and put him at ease. That was the nature of their relationship. They were warming up, you know, and you know how baseball players do. They, they throw a few that are close and so forth, and, and then, then as their arm gets warm, they'll step back a few s- steps and keep keep stretching the strength of that arm as, as they're warming up. And, and they had just started that, and they, they s- threw a few, and, and, and Pee Wee noticed Jackie take a few steps back, and he said, yeah, yeah, Jackie, why, why, why don't you move a little farther away? We don't know if this guy's a good shot or not. And Jackie laughed. There was at least someone else out there on the field that knew exactly where he was, knew exactly what he faced, and would not run away. And Pee Wee Reese would always say, don't, don't, don't make me out to be the hero in any of this. It was, it was Jackie that took all the heat. It wasn't courageous for me to do what I did that day. And what he's referring to is that moment that they were before the crowd and the, the racial taunting started from the stands. And it was vicious and it was obscene. And Jackie made a few errors. And when he made the errors, it just dumped on him full force. And after that second era, era in, in playing the game, I understand that Pee Wee Reese walked from where he was in his position to where Jackie was in his position. And some say that there were words shared there. Others say that no word was shared. But we know that Pee Wee Reese put his arm around Jackie's shoulders and turned around and faced the jeering crowd and without a word stared them down to silence. slapped his buddy on the butt and went back to second base. We, we always need at times someone to come alongside and strengthen us. In that moment that we want to quit, in that moment that we want to pass, in that moment that we want to step out, instead of stand up, we, we all appreciate those moments when when God places a peewee <laughs> in our life to come stand beside us, to help us through. But you know, I, I'm here to tell you this morning that sometimes that person will not be there. I mean, that's why we do church together. That's why we're in small groups. That's why we walk this life with one another is because we know we need that kind of strengthening for some time. But, but there are some times, my friends, when a friend cannot be found where that friend does not walk in. And in those moments, what do you do? What do you do? David was in one of those moments in 1 Samuel 30. He and his marauding bunch had, had gone out uh, to serve their king. And as they returned, they found their hideaway city, Ziklag, completely devastated. It was, it was burned to a crisp. There was nothing left behind. And everything of... of, of, of importance that was there had been taken from them 
all of their kids, all of their wives. David, David came back to find both of his wives gone. They were taken by this marauding bunch that had, had come in just to pilfer the town. And, and they had left. And, and you'd think in that moment, as all of his compadres are, are, are sharing the same kind of grief, that, that in that moment, that that would have bound them together, but that's not what's happened. You know what happened? Every one of those who were part of his band turned against him and said, Dave, you know, isn't that the way it happens sometimes? When people hurt, th- they will point a finger. Someone has to be to blame, and that's what David's men did in that moment. They turned on David, and they were going to stone David. Now, here's David. He suffered a loss no less grievous than all those that are wanting to stone him. No one is on his side. Even his wives have been taken away. He is completely alone in this world. He's on first base and the crowd is jeering. No one walks in. What does David do? Read that story again and it's one of the most profound Lines in all of Scripture. It says simply this. David encouraged himself in the Lord. I I want you to go to that passage in your Scripture this afternoon and, and underline it. Flag it. Be able to find it again. There will be those times when we have to encourage ourselves in the Lord. And what these parables tell us is that we have a Holy Spirit. Jesus described the Holy Spirit as the one called alongside to help. His word for it was parakletos, one called alongside to help. Do you see the picture? I I don't know how he did it, Some of you may listen to praise music. Some of you may read your Bible. Some of you may go away to a quiet place. But each and every one of you, according to what Jesus is teaching us here, have a God and a Father in heaven who in that moment is with you. You can count on it. You can count on it always. He isn't like anybody that you've ever met. All those other people that have left you down. All those other unrighteous judges in this world. All those other friends that wouldn't get up and come. All those others are not like this God. He has laid down his life for you. Would he not pay attention to you now? If you ever needed a friend to walk in when the whole world is walked out, David knows who, who to call upon. To you. Do you? Would you do that this morning? Some of you right now may be in one of those kind of situations. You're hurting and no one's walked in. I pray God gives you the grace to forgive those friends that maybe ought to know. That maybe ought to care. But I can almost guarantee you this. The strength to forgive them, the strength to go on in this situation flows from a fountain that has nothing to do with any other human than the one that has died in your place. So if you've got a friend like that in heaven, a father like that in heaven, 
a, a, a friend like Pee Wee Reese. Would you claim that this morning? Do you need to claim that this morning? If this morning you choose to receive God as Jesus portrayed God to us all, that invitation is before you. You, you may have a little journey in front of you to profess that this morning from wherever you are to, to an altar. It may be about the distance from short top, short stop to second base. <laughs> but know this, whatever journey you take with him, is empowered by the journey he has already taken to you. This morning, would you respond to his invitation? He may not speak a word, but his arm would be around you, and his eye would be upon everything that opposes you until with him you prevail. Want a friend like that? Want other friends who call upon a friend like that to be those on the field with you? We invite you into the membership of this church and to our Lord this morning as we stand and sing.